if what you wanted for Christmas was a long time listening to Bob Murphy talk on the Libertarian Christian Podcast, you must have been good this year. Hope you like it, folks. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and we have special guest Bob Murphy with us today. Bob, he's a man that needs no introduction to this show. In addition to hearing his voice every time you listen to an episode of our podcast, you can hear him as co-host of the podcast Contra Krugman, as well as the Laura Murphy Report. Bob is the author of numerous books, and he blogs regularly at consultingbyrpm.com. And on every Sunday, what Bob does is he actually talks about uh, something that's more along the lines of his Christian faith. He is, he is public that he is a Christian and he is a libertarian slash anarcho-capitalist. And Bob, a lot of people look up to you as a Christian. I think a lot of Christians look up to you because they see you as an example of someone who has, in in many ways, thought about the integration of your faith and your your anarcho-capitalism slash libertarianism. I'm probably not going to need to say that all show. You know, a lot of people look up to you, and uh, we wanted to have you on the show to talk about your uh, your Christian testimony and just give us a little bit of background on your thinking on how does your faith and your philosophy of liberty uh, go together. So thanks for thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, not only do I not need an introduction, I am the introduction to this show. Or at ah, least I have been that's for a, a while. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I appreciate the kind remarks. I, I should probably say at the outset, it actually makes me uncomfortable if you say Christians look up to me because, you know, of course, <laughs> nobody, there's no such thing as a good Christian or an adequate Christian except Jesus himself. And so let me just say that obvious uh, disclaimer, but yeah, certainly I'm happy to talk ab- about my background and you know how did I get to be where I am at this point because it it is somewhat of an unusual story probably. Um, and let me also just say that I think the the role that I'm playing or one of the roles in this is that it was not that long ago where I really very uh, with with trepidation started blogging about my faith because I was expecting to get just waves of protest. And actually that did happen in the beginning. And then it kind of died down. Like, I think people just realized, okay, this guy's hopeless. You know, he, he believes in his magical fairy in the sky and, you know, we thought he was reasonable and they, and they moved on. And then I got a lot of emails over time from people saying, yeah, I've been a libertarian for a long time, but I've been a lifelong Christian. And I just kept my mouth shut because on social media, like the you know the atheist the, the militant atheist libertarians are just so dominant and so we're glad you're you're speaking out so th- that was the the perception um but i don't know if it's just a thing of i now that i'm looking for it i notice it or or what the change is but i i don't sense that anymore i think there's that people who are religious and libertarian don't feel like you know, they got to keep that to themselves now that there's enough of us that are ropes. And, of course, what you guys are doing, I mean, duh, that's that's a pretty big uh, example of what I'm talking about. So, anyway, I just want to do say for people who are new to this, the climate has changed for whatever reason that it, it used to be that, yeah, you really were 
asking to just get attacked by people, putting a bullseye on yourself on online, um, and that seems to have gotten a lot better. Yeah, that's that's something you're right. The climate, <laughs> the climate has changed uh, in that regard, and I think I hope LCI has has contributed to that in a positive way. I mean, we have a large Facebook group, but um, and and a lot of people are able to ask questions of each other and how you know examples and stuff. So, yeah, but uh, so were you, Bob? Tell us, I guess way to start this would be to ask you to just give us a little bit of your backstory. Um, I don't know if you grew up a Christian, if you could just share with us uh, how you became a Christian. Uh, did that come before or after being libertarian? Where, where does that start? Sure. Well, uh, my full name is, I'm Robert Patrick Murphy. I'm a good Irishman. So I went to, I was raised Catholic. So my parents are both Catholic. They, you know, if I visit them, we go to the Catholic mass um, and so I went to Catholic school K through eight. Then I went to Thomas Aquinas High School, which is <laughs> Catholic if the name didn't tip you off. Um, so I was raised Catholic. I went up through, uh, received up through the sacrament of confirmation and that. Um, but as I was, what, what happened, and I eventually became an atheist by the time I was an undergrad. And so what happened was, uh, I mean, it, I'm just telling what happened to me personally. I, I don't, you know, I can't speak to other people's experiences, but some of the cliche about, you know, Catholics not reading the Bible, I mean, that, that was true in, in my case that it, you know, I, I don't know if this is typical or what, but I, I just know in my experience, like I was trying to read it on my own a couple times. I loved, you know, the gospel accounts, but I started trying to read the Old Testament. I'm, I'm saying like when I was a kid and I would just, you know, whoa. There's some crazy stuff in there, and man, that God of the Old Testament, man, he's mean. He don't mess around with that guy. You know, he's, he's Jesus is nice. I get Jesus. I don't get that. So that was where I was coming from. Uh, and in terms of how did I become an atheist or why, it was I was very much into science and reason, and I I think to be honest, I mean, nobody ever said this out loud, but looking back, I think especially the younger priests, it, it was a very um, I don't want to say progressive. Let's just say liberal. That's a better term uh, for you know the, the the politics of the 1980s when I would have been going to these schools in the early 90s. Um, the priests were very much into social justice, that sort of thing. Um, and I think I literally took a class called social justice. To be honest with you, so don't tell Tom Woods that. Um, and and I was I was becoming. I first thought I was conservative politically, then I realized I was libertarian. And I was really into science. Like I said, I, I loved reading like Richard Feynman and you know reading stuff about relativity and all that. I, I before I went into economics, I actually thought I was going to be a physicist. And so I just you know started thinking, oh yeah, this stuff is all superstition. And also the other thing, what I meant to say about the priests that I was around, I think a lot of them just you know viewed the devil as a metaphor. I, I think you know what they viewed their role was is to make people be good people on earth and um you know and, and that was really the role of the church I, I i'm brushing with broad strokes obviously but i i really right, that's yeah. kind of what, what i you know you, you'd go to of course at a catholic mass you know they would read from the bible both the old and new testament but the what they called the homily you know the, the sermon was typically the places that i went it was you know the priest you know trying to get you to go be better people out there. But, you know, but that's fine as far as it goes, but it was not. And, it, you know, it could, it could be loosely based on whatever the gospel reading was for that week. But 
it was not like walking through and, okay, let's look at verse 4 here. Now, what does this mean? And certainly it wasn't going through the epistles and talking about justification, obviously. So um, th- that's that's where I, I – so I'll stop and let you guys re- react to that because I don't want to – you know, I've been t- rambling for a while here. But, th- but that's where I was as of uh, undergrad. And just to show you how serious it was, my atheism, I joked and called myself a devout atheist. I thought that was clever. And, of course, what I meant by that was – like, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, you know what? I don't really believe. Like, I really thought, like, I have well-developed arguments, and I can sit here and have a conversation and debate you and tell you why I don't believe. I, I was um, friends with some kids who were, you know, like, had been raised as, as strong Christians, and I was trying to talk them out of it. I wasn't doing it to be a jerk. I thought I, was, I would be freeing them. Like, I thought that they had this crazy superstition that their parents shackled them with, and I was trying to free them from it. Um, and... And I actually went and got books out of the library, like George Smith's book on atheism and uh, Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason and H.L. Mencken's treatise on the gods that were all, um, you know, so, so Paine was a, a deist, as I recall, but, but he was, you know, had a scathing critique of the, the Christian Bible, like pointing out inconsistencies and things in his mind. How did your friends take it? I mean, were you pretty good at, at challenging their faith? Yeah. I mean, I mean, they didn't abandon it, thank goodness, but... I mean, I, so like I said, I was very nice about it. Like it, it wasn't like hostile or anything. And they were, you know, I would say stuff like, "Come on, if the reason you believe the particular, you know, sect you are is because that's what your parents were. If you had been born to Muslim parents, you'd be a Muslim." And you know, one guy was like, "Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you're. Yeah, I, I can't say you're wrong." And ultimately, you know, a bunch of them kind of just said, "Well, I've had these personal experience. Like I, I felt God move in my life, and so yeah, I can see Bob why you know you're using these arguments, but." Ultimately, that's going to bounce off me because you know I have these these direct personal interactions, and and that's not going to change your logical critique of you know certain inconsistencies you see in the Bible. So it was that kind of thing. But just to finish that train of thought, so what, what I had planned on writing the definitive refutation of Christianity. So <laughs> that's that. I mean, that's how serious I like I said it was. And so the fact that so people who knew me in college when they later heard that I became a Christian, they were just astonished. Because you know that was not at all the uh, the image I was exuding at the time. So what was it? Was it one of those like in your process of refuting Christianity, you decided to embrace it, or was it something different? That's what like Lee Strobel. I got the right, right guy. My yeah, thing of, yep. that was his deal. Uh, it it wasn't. It would be cool if that's what it was, but no, it wasn't um, that. What happened? I I will. I'll try to say this as succinctly as possible without leaving out anything important. So what happened is when I was in grad school, I was it was overwhelming, you know, just the workload and everything, and I, I wasn't used to being to having to work that hard. You know, I, I before I was kind of guy in undergrad, you know, study the night before and get a hundred on the test kind of thing. And so grad school at NYU that was a huge jump, and 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 in the for the first time, I was not. Obviously, the best person, you know, later I got my bearings and stuff, but in the beginning, I was really overwhelmed. And there were other, you know, people in my program who had masters and they had seen this kind of math before. And so, anyway, it was just, um, I was out of my comfort zone. And all the people there, well, most of them were from other countries. And so, just, you know, I, I didn't feel like I fit in as well. And so, just pers- on a personal level, like I, I became really depressed. Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't go see anybody about it or anything. But I mean, I I would have been diagnosed with severe clinical depression. I'm sure if I had gone and 
talked to somebody and told them, you know, my symptoms or what have you. And, uh, and then it was, I, I just, I had this realization at one point that like I had just been for, for years been misinterpreting a lot of social interactions I had had with people, like people that I thought didn't like me. Um, and I was wondering like, Oh, what I do wrong. And I just, all these things with these interactions would go a certain way. And I had always walked away thinking, Oh wow, that person didn't like me, and or this reason, or oh wow, that you know she must have been looking at a pimple on my forehead, or so, you know things like that. Just uh, and I realized looking back that oh wow, no, in, in each of these situations, the person had been intimidated by me or me trying to fit in. Maybe I cracked a joke and you know hurt the person's feelings, or so it, it's not worth trying to get in right now for the purposes of this show. But I just I had, it was an epiphany. There's no other word to describe it. Where I just literally, you know, saw in my mind's eye dozens of inter well, let's say at least, let's say at least a dozen, put it that way, of interactions like some going years back, where I realized I had totally misinterpreted what had happened, and like it changed the narrative of my life. Like I, I realized, like I had been building this narrative in my head of that, yeah, people don't get me, and I'm sitting here trying to help everyone, and they're a bunch of idiots, and I was just real mad and just, you know, stereotypical, angry young man kind of thing, and I realized just how much how much I was not always the good guy in all these interactions, let's put it that way. So it's not that I realized I was a monster, but I realized, oh, geez, you know, that I was kidding when I said that, but I can see why that guy who didn't know me at the time thought I was really tearing into him, and oh, geez. So I went through this thing, this epiphany, like I said, it hit me, and I literally just felt the relief just wash right through me. And I had had, just to give you an example of how serious, because otherwise the story doesn't make sense. It was so serious and intense that I had, I had like, I was so stressed out, had such anxiety that like the skin on my face was peeling off. And, and I, I don't mean to, for people like understand what do I mean? It, it, it didn't look like I had a huge bad sunburn, but it was like the, like where the nose connects to your cheek, if you will. Like that area, like it was always just really raw and red. And I was seeing dermatologists and stuff, and they were giving me, it wasn't working. And when this relief just washed through me, because I realized why, you know, I was butting my head up against the wall socially, like I, how I was causing my own problems, and I was not nearly the aggrieved victim that I thought, and I was causing a lot of the problems. When that relief washed through me, I instantly knew that my skin was going to be fine. Like, you know, I, you know, I just, re like, just, I had become such an expert at managing the depression and the anxiety and stress that when it was gone, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what it feels like when you're normal. Like, I forgot that. And so I realized, oh, yeah, the reason my skin had been flaking off is because I was so stressed out and I forgot. So, like I said, I went, like, I immediately had this craving and I went to a bodega and just got, like, a half gallon of orange juice and just chugged it. And, like, so my body all of a sudden started craving things like, you know, nutrients and whatever. And, and I was right. My skin was fine. And so because of that, I really understood what people meant by the, you know, the power of the mind over the body and the power of suggestion and stuff like that. Because I wouldn't have believed that until I directly experienced it, that because I had had faulty ideas in my head about my self-worth or whatever you want to call it, once that fixed itself, like my body just healed. And so then I was like, oh, wow, okay, now I see how that works. You know what? Instead of me thinking this guy Jesus was a complete myth that a bunch of crazy people or liars invented to try to foist this religious system on the world, 
which kind of doesn't make sense. Like, what, you know, how did that gain traction if they just made it all up? My new hypothesis was, okay, I bet you there was this crazy guy 2,000 years ago who honestly believed he was the Messiah, and he was walking around healing people, like with leprosy, which is, you know, what I had times a 1,000. And since they believed him when he said, your sins are forgiven and I'm healing you, they, their body fixed itself. So it wasn't, so at the time I was like coming up with rational explanations that I thought were a better, a more plausible theory or hypothesis to explain the observations. Because clearly Christianity started from nothing and it took over the, you know, most of the world. And so, you know, it was just all based on a falsehood that didn't seem plausible. So I thought I came up with a scientific, rational explanation that I could believe in now because I saw firsthand the power of, you know, if you really think you're over something, your body can, you know, is pretty, pretty capable. You don't need, you know, doctors to give you something. So it was that. And then from there, it just, it just kept accumulating. And I had some, some more direct, I'll tell you one last thing and then I'll, I'll stop and let you guys uh, respond if you want. The other huge thing, um, I'm condensing and skipping some steps, but so I was in that state for, I don't know, several days at least of where I, you know, believe that Jesus really was going around healing people, but it was all rational and so on. And I was even coming up with stuff like the plagues, the order of them. I realized, well, wait a minute. Suppose there was something in the water that made it, you know, messed it up and it looked red, like it was like some chemical or something or some algae growth or I don't know what. So it looked blood red. It wasn't actually blood, but it looked, you know, someone looking at it would just say, wow, that is blood red. What would happen? Well, clearly all the frogs that were in, you know, the river would jump out. And then the frogs are overrunning you. They're going to bring flies with them. And the, you know, see what I'm saying? So I was coming up with ways of saying if there was just some initial thing to get that going, I could kind of, quote, rationally explain the 10 plagues, or not, not all 10 of them, but a bunch of them. Like the order kind of made sense in that, in that um, thing. So I, that's what I was doing. And, um, but then there were some things that went on and I, I was pushed up to the point where I was realizing, okay, this is kind of silly, Bob. You're, you're sort of grasping at straws to, you know, you refuse to believe like, isn't it just simpler or in other words, okay, I still haven't explained though. How did this guy Moses know that stuff was going to happen in that order? Right. Even if I could explain it ex post. It still seems, you know, <laughs> if you believe the story, this guy was predicting it ahead of time, each one of them. And so that seems kind of crazy. Um, and the same thing with Jesus. It wasn't just that, you know, even if I could come up with a way that he could have healed people and maybe he was nailed to a cross and he was such, you know, he was in such good shape and had such good, you know, stamina and he was such an amazing person. Maybe he could be in there for three days or, you know, come out. But still, he predicted it, you know, that kind of thing. So I was really, and and finally, I. I said, all right, if I see one more thing, and this is going to sound silly to people, but you know, I'm, I, I have no reason to, to lie. I'll be honest with what it was. I just said I had a lot of stuff building up, and I was really on the edge of, oh, my gosh, is there really a God? And I kind of just said out loud. Um, I don't know if I actually said it out loud or just thought it, but I was like, okay, if, if I see one more thing, then I'll believe. And I, put, and I put my hands in my pockets, and there was a $10 bill in there. Now, I know that's not a big deal, but... At the time, like there was no reason there should have been a $10 bill in my pocket. And I know that might sound weird to some people and stupid, but if you knew me at the time, it was inconceivable that I would have money in my pocket and not know about it. Just that I was that anal and checking my wallet every two seconds. So I was like, whoa. And, and I, it was funny because I was kind of like, 
oh, come on, is, that, is this a joke? In other words, it wasn't like a burning bush or something, but I had just said, okay, if I see one more sign, you know, that I'm not, you know, that I shouldn't expect. And so then, you know, it kind of hit me, and so this is the the part. Um, so I, I felt this immense guilt, you know, because I was remembering all the stuff of the, you know, kids in, in, in college that I was trying to talk out of it and whatever. But I, you know, I, I felt like, Hey, it, it was an honest mistake. Like I, I and, it's, and so I just said out loud, I am so sorry. And I heard a voice in my head saying, I forgive you. And so, you know, I believe me, I, I said, I, I would spent years. I was getting ready to write a refutation of Christianity. So I know skeptics hearing me say that are going to say, Oh, come on. You felt really guilty. You wouldn't have been able to live with yourself. So your subconscious generated this voice that you quote heard so you could, you know, get on with your life and deal with it. Yeah, I, I get that, but I'm telling you what I experienced. I heard a voice in my head say, I forgive you. So, you know, <laughs> so I, all right, I've been talking for a while. I'll stop there. Well, I, <laughs> that's a really powerful story and feel very unable to actually follow up with some questions. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's pretty personal. And, um, you know, I don't know how often you get to share that with, with people that you, you know, your church or, or other, you know, family and stuff. But, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Nick, do you have any questions or follow-up? So, yeah, Bob, that's that's really just a, a fascinating and, and very personal touch. And, you know, it, it seems like uh, when speaking to people who are intellectually minded and, you know, of course, there's there, there's a lot of, as we know, there are many Christians who are intellectual types. And, and as you've experienced and many of us have experienced, uh, w- when speaking to skeptics, it's, it's kind of like they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand how, how you can be so educated and quote-unquote logical on some things, and yet, according to them and their perception, be totally irrational in this other area. But that's, that's something I just think of the, the paradox of faith. You know, like if you look back to the ancient West, uh, Greco-Roman world, where really the philosophers came out of, and everything is sort of in this very logical procession, and that's why that's why the the, the ancient philosophers, the the Socratics and so forth, were accused of denying the gods of of Greece, uh, precisely because they reasoned everything through in this way. But you know, the the, the Bible predominantly is an ancient Near Eastern book, and the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, is able to hold things in paradox, and that's that's normal. That's part of that's part of their worldview, and I think we've kind of lost that in in the modern West. I mean, there is there is an enigma to the faith that, while not illogical, uh, doesn't always make evident sense to the human eye, and I think that's kind of that's kind of how many of us have have walked down that road. And I, my, when I hear your story, that's kind of how I think of it. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're an educated person, a rational person, and, and yet this happens to you and it just totally overpowers, um, what you, what you formerly thought was the logical way of looking at things. But once you realize, Oh, Hey, there's so many things in this world that I don't know and don't understand, uh, that, that, that sort of challenges the paradigm. Is that, does that kind of fit with where you're coming from? Yeah, for sure. And let me just 
clarify or not clarify, but emphasize. I think sometimes when when cynics hear my story, they misinterpret what I said, and they and they think I said, "Oh, I was really really depressed, and then I found God, and then I wasn't depressed anymore." And so they think like, "Oh, you you needed to invent something to get out of your depression." And so let me be clear: that is not the order of what happened. In my mind, I solved my depression on my own just by thinking it through and realizing, oh, wow, my timeline, you know, the, the way I had chronicled those events from my past, actually, I realized was wrong. And this narrative I had developed over years about what kind of person I was and blah, blah, and that was wrong. So, it, but it was because of that realization and then the relief it generated and the changes in my body that I, that's when I said, oh, wow, that, you know, the, the ability of your mind to affect your, your, your body is stronger than I had would have thought until seeing that. So anyway, just want to put that down. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. And what I can, there's been a few times in my life where I have been really sure I understood something. And I'm not talking about secular things. This had nothing to do with, with faith or, you know, faith versus science, that kind of thing. And I realized I was wrong later when you could use the cliche of a paradigm shift, just things like, um, from economics, it was arrows and possibility theorem. I spent a couple days thinking I had disproven it. And I like thought I came up with a counterexample. And then I realized, Oh, wait a minute, my counterexample is wrong. And I, and then I really realized how the proof worked. And so at that point I understood the proof better than my classmates did, even though, you know, when I told him I had a counterexample, like the one guy was like, come on. He was like kind of laughing at me. Like, no, they proved it. You can't have a counterexample. So I'm just saying, because I actually walked around for a few days thinking I had beaten it, and then when I came back, like I knew it so much better, having gone through that. And then another thing too, if people know my work with this issue about the government um, debt and does it burden future generations, I used to think about it a certain way, and then this guy Nick Rowe in Canada got me to realize I was wrong, and then going through that transformation. I feel like I understand it so much better than people who have just always been on one side. So having said all that, yeah, I believe me. If you know, for skeptics who are here in this interview, I I was going to write the book. <laughs> I I, th- I thought you know I so I get people who disagree with it, and it's just all I can say is now from this perspective, it is so amazing to see these airtight arguments I used to think I had in my toolbox to blow up Christianity. Now I see just how weak they are. And it's 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 amazing, but yet I remember when I thought those things were just you know oh man I got eight different independent arguments to knock it down, you know what? So let me get this straight: God was mad at us because we sinned, and He was blaming all of humanity. Then He sends His Son, and we murder Him, and now God's okay with it. What kind of sick story is that? You know, I mean, I had stuff like that in my toolbox. Believe me, so I, I get it. So after you had this experience what what sort of happened next i mean did you did you start reading books on christianity did you go talk to some people who you knew who were christians and or or did you kind of keep it to yourself and and keep studying for a while what what was the process there okay sure and so here i'm i'm i might be getting some of these details wrong um so i'm just acknowledging i don't remember this as clearly and it's too bad at the time i thought oh wow i should write this down but um I didn't, you know, I was thinking, oh, I'm too busy right now. I'll write it down when I have more time, and then that never happened. So it's too bad I didn't jot this stuff down at least. But so at this point, I wasn't a Christian. I was just, I, I believe in God. And and so I started just doing research. You know, I was I was getting out books on Confucius and Buddhism and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, 
I, I tried going to the Catholic church that was right across the street from where I was, and it's – I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just telling you what happened. The first time I went in there, it, it was like they like, uh, they brought in an outside guy who was trying to raise money for some building pride. Like, he wasn't a priest. He was just some – in his demeanor, like, I don't know. It, it just – yeah, I don't know. I, I just walked out. I, <laughs> so I, I stopped going to that particular thing. It wasn't that I renounced Catholicism. I just said, you know, I'm not going to that particular church anymore. Um, so I was looking around, and uh, I, you know, I was thinking the standard, oh, well, who's to say what particular denominations, right? Or maybe they all are grappling towards their – or groping for the truth, and God is so you know powerful and incomprehensible. It's not surprising. There's different schools of thought. Um, but it was just – so it was later – I'm trying to think. It was, I think, a, uh, a year or two after you know what I just described to you guys that I – um, decided to accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And that was because, well, not because, but this guy, Dick Clark, I don't know if you guys know it, not, not the Dick Clark, not the not the New Year's Eve guy. Actually, uh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, Interestingly enough, I met him out here in Las Vegas like, mm-hmm. geez, eight years ago at a, at a political event. So I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So he's a libertarian for people who are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, Dick Clark was out in Vegas. That makes sense. <laughs> the, the, the guy we're talking about, the younger guy, libertarian guy. Um, I had knew he had worked at the Mises Institute, and so I just knew him from that. And uh, on his website, you know, I was going there to download his articles on Rothbard or something, and he just had a, a statement under his bio about the date that he where he accepted Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. And I was an atheist at the time, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. So I kind of filed that away. So that that's what kind of put it in my head because I had never gone to you know evangelical churches or anything. So I just I didn't even have any frame of reference. But that's it was from his website that that, you know, I, I kind of knew that, oh, yeah, there's a certain type of Christian who talks like that, you know, from that's And some of the people, and now that I'm thinking about in college, the ones I tried to talk out of it, I think one guy, his fiance, you know, kind of came at me pretty hard one time when I met him for dinner when I was still an atheist about, you know, do you know the Lord and everything. And it really made me uncomfortable at the time. But so anyway, I, I, I knew that kind of stuff. So it, I did that. And that was because just every... Everything in my, I had become a pacifist actually, um, and what pushed me over the edge there was just reading Jesus, you know, his his teachings, and um, and by the way, I'm not saying every Christian needs to be a pacifist. I'm just saying I happened to be one, and it was Jesus' teachings that led me there, because I was doing it quote rationally, you know, just thinking through cost benefit and da da da, and you know, actually, if I just because because I lived in a dangerous neighborhood at this point, I was still in grad school. And I was debating whether to get a gun. And I just decided that, no, it's just as a strategy. I'm not going to have one because that will force me to be more careful. You know what I mean? Like, I'll have to avoid situations ahead of time. Whereas if I have a gun, I might let things, you know, I would, it's not that I would ever have used a gun in a way that I would have thought was immoral, but it was just, I thought, practically speaking, I I think it's a better strategy overall just if I don't have a gun on me. And so just that kind of logic, but then, you know, reading Jesus stuff and going down that path, you know, turn the other cheek and whatever. When I was younger, I thought that was clearly just hyperbole on his part because, oh my gosh, if you turn the other cheek, people would just, you know, take advantage of you. And then the older I got and thinking through those things and I hope getting wiser more and more, I thought, you know, I think he actually literally meant that. Um, so anyway, that th- that's what made me accept him as my Lord and Savior because to me, that just meant 
everything about my life, any, you know, deficiency I have, like, who's my role model, what just every problem I have, I just look at, you know, I was like, man, these other libertarians, I'm sitting here trying to help them, and they're not following, and, and, and you know, they don't get it, and they're, they're second-guessing me. I was just, I was so angry at the world at that point still. And so I'd say, well, look at Jesus and how, you know, and his disciple, you know what I mean? Like, he didn't get mad at that. So I would just, like, any kind of problem I had in my life, I realized it was nothing compared to, or I was worried that people weren't accepting my, I was trying to help them and they didn't appreciate it. Well, Jesus going around healing people and giving them amazing sermons and they they murdered them. You know, so it's just every problem I thought I had, I realized, okay, I really can't complain about that because look at Jesus. So that that's what made me do it. I, at that point, nobody, I didn't realize you know, the problem of, of sin and, and that sort of, like, justification by faith and things. I, I No one had ever explained that to me um, at that point. But, so anyway, I'll I'll stop there. But, th- so that was partly the progression. So at that point, I mean, I clearly, I would have called myself a Christian at that point. And, but it, and it was more and more thinking more and more, like, yeah, maybe the, the, these Bible accounts aren't just metaphors or aren't just poetic you know, maybe this actually happened. You know that, that so all this stuff was kind of going on simultaneously. Because the thing I told you originally with the "I forgive you" episode that just made me not be an atheist anymore. I, I wasn't a Christian at that point. So just to give our to, to give the listeners a sense of where we are, I mean, this is the events you're describing right now are are in graduate school, or they, is this after graduate school at this point? Everything I've said so far, I was still at grad school. You were still in grad school, okay. Yeah, so by the time I went and was a professor at Hillsdale College, at that point I was already, you know, a Christian going to church. And in fact, I got baptized in a, you know, what I would call a Christian evangelical church in Hillsdale as an adult. Okay. In yeah. A, and did you did you go to Mises U before you were part of it as a as a professor? Yes. So So where where was, where does yeah. that timeline come in? I'm trying to just get a sense of you know, because I know if if nobody knows this particular story of you, they kind of if they've met you or have listened to a lot of your stuff or seen your writings on Mises.org, then they they might have a sense of how far back you go there. So I'm just trying to get the parallel. Right. So let me. I'm just thinking here. So I was at NYU from '98 to 2003, that grad school, and I think I think my second year there is when I started going to the Mises Institute first as a grad student and then later um you know once i had my phd as a as a professor so yeah i i would have been my first f- i think th- either three or four years at the mises institute i was a grad student like you know a summer fellow they called it so okay. i'd spend the summer down there working on my dissertation gotcha okay and so that it's so where's maybe halfway through that is when the stuff we've been talking about happened so uh, I probably when I first went to Mises U, I was probably an atheist, and then five years later, maybe like the fifth time there, I, I would have been not been something like that. Were any of the Christians that you interacted with uh, at Mises at the time, whether as students or or faculty? Well, that one guy, Dick Clark, was it? You know, he he worked. What did he? I forget. I don't know if he worked in the bookstore or the front. But yeah, so I think he he was. I mean, he was young. He was an Auburn student, I believe. I hope I'm not getting my facts mixed up. Um, so yeah, I was just you know buddies with him, and then I you know he happened to be a Christian. You know, it wasn't like he was proselytizing me, but I I could I knew he was just from his website and and whatever. Um, I knew some. I guess if you had asked me, I would have known some of the faculty were. But that's at that point. I mean. 
that's not how I parse the world, if that makes you know what I mean? Like it's well, I was just wondering if the people that you were referring to in your story happened to be the mm. some of the same people we might have, you know, learned about through the Mises Institute. A lot of our listeners are people who are fans of the right. Mises Institute. So, you know, you know what? Actually, trying to connect yeah, dots a little bit, that's I'm, all. I'm remembered. I don't want to say they're, just because I don't know if they want me talking about but there was like one young woman who was there who was very Christian, and we had very, you know, pleasant conversations about Thomas Paine and, and, and stuff like that and how... Um, you know, he dedicated the age of re- reason to Washington and stuff like. So it, now that you're ta- mentioning it, yeah, it, it is coming. But just I haven't thought about those years in a, in a while. So at first, I, I was having no recall, but now it's, it's coming back. So yes, I was definitely aware of that milieu, and certainly, you know, I, I knew that. Oh yeah, there's plenty of people in the libertarian Austrian community who are uh, theists of various persuasions. Yeah, I think that's probably where I was heading with that, or just maybe think of it was, you know, we know a lot of people uh, either at the Mises Institute or supporters um, or attendees uh, who are are Christians. And uh, so it wouldn't be surprising if some of them have had uh, rubbed shoulders with you during that time. So I was just, I'm just curious if, if that was the case. Uh, Bob, is there more to the story or do you feel like, do you, do you feel like we've wrapped that part of it up or do you have a few more things you want to um, insert there to bring us to the present. No, I mean, it just from there, it has just been a gradual process. I, you know, been going to church, of course, and, you know, Bible study groups when possible. With my cousin, I have a pretty regular, uh, you know, Bible study that we go through and read, you know, Matthew Henry uh, and some other commentaries. So I would, it, it's just a, a frequently, well, I'll stop him and I'll just say, it's amazing how compatible the old and new testament are and you know like i said when i was little and i tried to when i say little i mean i was probably like 12 or 13 or something and i tried to read the old testament at that point my framework and it was just i thought what the heck is going on and who is this this crazy god of the old testament and so now it it is amazing to me just to see you know how much foreshadowing there is and and so on but so it's it's been to answer your question it's been a, a very gradual but hopefully steady uh process of me just learning more about about this stuff so bob uh at the 2016 christians for liberty conference you were the keynote speaker and your topic i don't remember the exact title of the talk but it was something along the lines of uh arguing from your understanding of theology how christianity is compatible with not only libertarianism but specifically rothbardian anarcho-capitalism and you go back and forth with different skeptics on your blog uh, particularly in your sunday posts and things of that nature so can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the most common things that people come to you with that are criticisms or counter arguments or points of contention and how do you how do you answer them? And I'm, I'm speaking specifically in reference to the compatibility of Christianity and libertarianism. Sure, great question. Um, I think the title of that talk was "Is the God of the Bible a Tyrant?" It was something like that. And and I think I got up and said, "No, thank you," or something. You know, to be it would be funny about opening it. Yeah, that um, was so the yeah, title. The, I looked it up here. Yeah, the, so that on that one, just to give the uh, too long didn't read version. I think I was, was it from Hitchens? I think it was from Hitchens. I was quoting somebody who was making what seemed to be a very compelling case that 
not only, you know, so the person was arguing, not only do I not believe in the God that, you know, Christians and, and Jews believe in, but I'm I'm glad he doesn't exist. In other words, it's it's not like, oh, too bad, that'd be nice, but I don't believe in fairy tales. It's, phew, I'm glad that that kind of a monstrous tyrant doesn't exist hanging over, because it is, you know, you can you can paint it in a certain way, and wait a minute, so there's this invisible thing, this invisible being, and unless I either do everything he says or say I love him more than anybody else, even will be willing to die for him, he's going to burn me forever in eternity. What the heck? That's a messed up system, right? So, and yeah, I, I could see from that perspective. Um, so one, what I did in that particular talk that I, I, I still haven't seen a good uh, way for Rothbardians to evade this is to say, okay, look, if you don't believe the Bible, if you think it's all just a bunch of fairy tales or whatever, okay, fine. You just don't believe it. Fair enough. But if you're going to go further and say, even on its own terms, why should we respect a being who behaves the way that, you know, the God of the Old Testament does in particular? And so, well, wait a minute. If the Genesis account is true, then God literally created every atom of the material universe. So according to your own views of property rights and, you know, homesteading and everything else, God clearly is the owner of the entire universe. And so he's just the landlord. He can tell you to do whatever he wants. You know, he's the, he's the owner. And, you know, like, just take any, any article Walter Block has ever written that's about, you know, uh, the use of a, a little plot of land or what, what somebody can do who owns an airplane and just say, okay, now what if somebody owned the entire physical universe? And, and so I, I was just, you know, saying somewhat tongue-in-cheek that, you know, libertari- atheist libertarians are really big on property rights except when it comes to God. And then all of a sudden, oh, that's not fair. He doesn't have the right to tell us. Well, well no, wait a minute. He owns the land you're standing on wherever you are. So you, your own system says he has the right to tell you how you can live. So, um, so that's that's you know that's perhaps very glib and people don't like that. But I mean that I think that's a pretty solid starting point that anything you know any any rules he gave you know because people say things like, oh that's theocracy of the Old Testament and you know he's they're killing people because they tripped and the ark started to fall. What kind of a monster orders that? Well, again, your own system, if you're a Rothbardian, says, you know, he's the owner. He can lay down whatever rules he wants. If you don't like it, go to a different universe. So you were taking their, their something that was pretty non-negotiable to someone like a Rothbardian and, and pretty solid property rights view and saying, well, if you just entertain the thought that this God might exist, why else, why would, why is this so abhorrent? Does that, does that make sense? How could you say that it's, he doesn't have the right to do it? So right. you, could, you could argue and say you don't like the rules, just like... If some landlord, you know, said at two a.m. every morning we're going to blast, you know, I don't know, some obnoxious music or something, and that's part of the contract, you know, use a libertarian could say that seems like a crazy rule, but uh, yeah, I guess right. if the tenants all knew that going into it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think that might have helped? I, I don't know. I just there's a little bit of me that wonders if that might have made people be like, well, <laughs> I'm not going to become a Christian if that's the case. Ah, uh, well, let me say for sure. I don't think anybody had been an atheist and they heard me say that and then said, oh, "Okay, now I'm a Christian." <laughs> I grant you there. I was just trying to show the uh, you know to answer the argument on its own terms of atheist libertarians who don't just say, "I I can't believe this stuff, guys." I'm oh, some guy walked on water. Some guy fed five thousand people. Come on, this is crazy. You know, if that's your view, you know, I, I get that and okay. But for the people who go further and say. 
it's not merely that I reject these things as being false historically, but even on its own terms, this God is, why would you worship and love some being that did this kind of stuff? He's a monster. And so, yeah, I try, I try to show, and that's just the, the, you know, we can, we can keep moving. Of course, that wouldn't be the whole thing I would say, but this, for me, that's the starting point is to say, he certainly has the right to do all this stuff. And now if you want to move the argument and say, well, you just don't like the rules that he has every right to impose. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, we could. Gosh, we could make a whole episode out of this particular topic. So we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll go to some other other yeah. examples. I, I, okay, yeah. So another obvious one is Romans thirteen. That's one that people bring up a lot. So you know, you go read Romans thirteen, and gosh, it's plain reading. It certainly looks like it's a it's every status dream come true. And how could any libertarian possibly endorse a system that includes Romans thirteen? Um, so here. I'm not saying I, I have any profound thing that other libertarian Christians haven't brought up already, but say, okay, number one, well, I used this when I was at Hillsdale, and so I gave a talk to a class, and the um, I gave a, a talk on, on anarchism, and, and so the kids at Hillsdale, some of them were, were very religious, and one of them brought up Romans 13, and I said, okay, but hang on. You guys were you're big fans of the, the Gulf Wars, right? Or, or not the fans, but you supported the U.S. government's efforts against Saddam Hussein, and of course they did. You know, Hillsdale was very pro, you know, U.S. military, and you know we're going to bring freedom to these people, kind of thing. And Saddam's a tyrant, and so I said, well, wait a minute, doesn't Romans thirteen say if if Saddam gassed some people, they must have had it coming? I mean, you know, the God didn't put Saddam in power for no reason, right? And so it was showing they, they clearly don't believe that for any pr- ruler at all. You know, they had their views as to what was just and unjust government. And so I said, same thing, that clearly Paul can't be, we, we, it doesn't make sense to be interpreting him as giving a blanket endorsement of every possible political figure. I mean, Paul himself was in jail. And clearly there were, you know, heroes of the Bible who were, you know, stood up to the state and were, were killed for it. So I said it, it obviously can only mean, you know, either Paul speaking nonsense or he means that, you know, if if the political authorities are executing lawful commands or or decrees, then you know if you if you get in the way of that and you get on the wrong side of the law, then well that's because you're a, a lawbreaker. So it's just if if you know as I as a as a Rothbardian just disagree with you about what the proper role of the state should be. You think it, as long as it obeys the constitution, then it's okay. I think no, even there it's illegitimate. So, but you know, we're not, we're not, both of us agree. We can imagine political rulers doing things that clearly can't be the the type of thing Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 13. Right. You can't, you can't hold up Romans 13 at the gates of Auschwitz and be like, see, this, the Bible endorses this kind of behavior because Romans 13, like it just doesn't work. Yeah, and, and I should say too. I think some um, atheists will call my bluff and say, "Well, right, you, you're you kind of admitted Murphy. Either Paul's speaking nonsense, or this is what he means." Well, we're saying just plain, plain text reading of a straightforward reading. He's speaking nonsense. So, if someone wants to go down that path, fair enough. But like I say, if, what I, here I was arguing with minarchist Christians. At Hillsdale, <laughs> and so that's I was saying. You guys can't use Romans. Minarchist Christians who had been supporters of the Gulf Wars, and I was like, "There's no way you guys can use Romans 13 against me because you know." So uh, I'm not saying that the, there could be internally consistent 
atheist libertarians using Romans 13, I think. They, they could just say, yeah, these people speak nonsense, and what, what are you talking about? What else do you, uh, what else do you tend to come across with, with uh, your atheist anarchist friends? Um, let's see. Well, m- maybe the story of Abraham and Isaac that, geez, what kind of a crazy monstrous God tells a guy to kill his son just to prove he loves him or, you know, ugh. like, you know, if any, if any human person, any human king did that, that'd be disgusting. So for there, I mean, I guess with all this stuff too, I, I get now like the term apologist because <laughs> normally that has a bad connotation. Like if I say Krugman's an apologist for Obamacare, what I mean is, oh my, Krugman knows he wants to support it and he's coming up with all sorts of desperate measures. So at first I used to think that was a, a weird term that, for Christians to be using, like to say, oh, C.S. Lewis is an apologist and like, yeah, do we, do we want to talk like that? Doesn't that? But I mean, l- let me just admit that here that, yes, it's because I had my experience and I n- am now you know, a committed Christian and just because I've studied other aspects of the, and things have clicked with the Bible with me that before I also would have either found incomprehensible or repugnant. And now I say, Oh no, I, now I see what's going on there. And I've had experiences similar to the more trivial things where, Oh, I didn't used to understand Arrow's theorem and Whoa, now I get it. And I understand it so much better because I realize how blind I was. A similar thing happens here. So stuff that again, when I was younger, yeah, I, I would have understood that that criticism. So now, um, but but given that I trust, let me. I, I know I'm I'm jumping around, but I will come back to it. Let me say though that w- when Jesus clearly he is a more moral person than I am, right? If you don't believe in him historically, okay, well the character depicted in the gospel accounts say what you will about him, but he is not some moral lightweight. And he says there's no one good but God, and he's obviously been steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, so he's referring to what we call the God of the Old Testament when he says the God of Abraham. So what I'm saying is if that guy who says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, if that guy who's getting nailed to a cross and says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, if he is telling me, in his opinion, the only good being around is God, then I can't sit there and say, oh, well, he told Abraham to kill Isaac and so therefore, you know, he, he must be a tyrant. So so that that's where I'm coming from with with the area, you know, issue of humility and so on that if if it looks like God in the Old Testament is doing something that jeez, I don't I don't get that at all. You you really got to be careful before you just dismiss it and say, well, he must I must be a more moral being than God is. Like that's just hubris. So anyway, back to the story. Um so number 1 obviously he stops him. <laughs> he, do, he doesn't actually have him kill his son. Number two, you know who does let his son be killed for others is God lets his son be killed for us. So that's kind of an interesting twist that, you know, it, I think it just foreshadows and shows, you know, God, yes, in principle, we should be willing to give up our most valuable thing, even our son, our cherished son, in the service of God. He wouldn't actually ask that of you, even though he's willing to do that sacrifice for us. Um but also something I had just more recently th- occurred to me, if if you're trying to, you know, you're Abraham's, he's got to be the patriarch, and it's got to go down through his line, you know, to for the prophecy to come true. So imagine you're his son, and you're getting tied up and whatever. Like you realize, whoa, 
my dad really believes this. You know, when he's telling me that God told him to do whatever, like that's going to, you know what I mean? Like just like if you're a little kid and your parents don't let you skip church and, you know, wow, my parents really tithe and okay, and this and that, you know. Whereas if your parents just, yeah, they go to church when it's convenient and so on, you would have different experiences growing up. So that was something that, you know, it, even though it, it it's freaks us out as modern people and ugh, but you know that that certainly would would <laughs> be a good way of of Abraham showing like I, I really you know I'm not I, I believe this stuff this this is just some show I'm putting on so um, I, again I I know this won't convince anybody that's like yep that those those people are crazy but it's if you had other reasons to believe that you can see how that story is, does fit in. Um, with the, with the whole narrative, you know, one of the things that you're doing here with a few, with just you know, obviously a very small sampling of examples from scripture, you know, Romans 13, uh, Abraham and Isaac. Um, you know, you're what you're what you're giving is a way to look at the scripture by saying, well, let's just take it on its own terms and and think through it and apply a little bit of logic and and goodwill especially if the, for those of you who might be listening who are kind of like yeah right i can't believe that um to you know kind of operate under the assumption that well let's just let's just let's just see how this would all fit together because it doesn't you know a lot of times you know use the word paradigm shift a lot of times there is a sense in which something doesn't make sense because we just don't think that way you know even earlier i asked a question and you were kind of like you know i don't i don't parse the world that way well it's just the way your brain's wired minds thinks a little bit differently and so sometimes you have to to get in the mind of the the narrators of the scripture or you know sometimes in the to i say this uh, with trepidation a little bit then inside the mind of god and like okay well this whole thing plays out in a certain way and there's certain parallels and things like that so you know what you're what i think you're giving us is a few examples of how to how to think through um i would say controversial passages and you know it's also i you know some of the ways that you've described it i've never thought of and you know i i think that that would be uh, uh acceptable way to to look at you know, explaining these things, especially if you have a hard, if, for those of us who sometimes have a hard time explaining to people who are just kind of like, yeah, I just, I just don't buy it. So, you know, I, I think those are really helpful. Well, thanks. And um, I guess one I just did recently uh, is, you know, just the notion of hell. Uh, and people have a hard time with that. And wait a minute, so I don't, I don't live up to God's rules or I don't accept his son as my savior or I don't love him and what the heck? If I don't do that, then I'm going to burn forever. Like, how can that be punishment that fits the crime? That just offends everything. So there, and the way I tried to explain that was more from a psychological perspective, and just I'll give the quick version, is just to say, okay, let me let me just, what if it were something like this? And then supposing what I'm about to say actually kind of captures what happens, and then can you see how the biblical warnings and and so on would make more sense in that light and i said so okay so let's say there's an afterlife right that's kind of got to be sure you're true otherwise none of this stuff matters and then what if what happens when you die is you come face to face with god you're you're in direct communion with him and you and he lets you just become instantly aware and have full comprehension of every of all of human history up you know from the beginning up until when you died and then even beyond that and suppose now, with that full information, you realize, you see, 
how much worse of a person you were than you thought you had been in your life. And so where I'm coming from is when I had my little epiphany and I realized, like, looking back, like, oh, gee, a lot of situations where I thought I was completely in the right and I was the, the aggrieved party. And then I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, from their point of view, I did such and such. And ooh. so what if it's like that? But, you know, times a billion because you're seeing the full ram. Because there's all kinds of stuff that you probably do to people that you just you don't know. You know, like someone get, you hurt someone's feelings where they go or you know, you're a, you yell at a coworker and that guy goes home and yells at his kid. And then that kid grows up in that environment. You know, I'm just I'm just giving examples of the kind of thing I mean. But I think if you fully saw just how bad you were, and you could say it'd be the other way too. That oh wow, I helped that person, or I, you know, I opened, I held the door for that old guy when he was coming out of the store, and that really brightened his day. And I I didn't even know that. Yes, but I mean, it's not like if you look at a serial killer's life and you're like, oh well, let's look at all the good stuff he did too. No, I mean, you you do certain things that are really over some line in your head. That's it, that you can't make up for that by doing good stuff to other people. And so I'm saying, what if when you die, you realize you cross the line in your head? As you draw the line, it's not that God's imposing his rules on you. You see, according to your own value system, how horrible you've been, and you had no idea that that, you know, that realization, if you weren't ready for that, that could be hell. And you're just like that now stunned and furious at the world and oh, it's not my fault i, I didn't realize why didn't you tell me and i wish i'd never been born you could just you could imagine the reaction if that's really what it were like and so i'm saying if if that's the kind of thing well what would prepare you for that well christianity would if you you know if you if you really intellectually emotionally psychologically have been preparing yourself by every time you go to church you say things and you read prayers and or you say prayers and you read scriptures where saying you deserve hell except for Jesus standing in your 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 place, then you're going to be equipped to to see like ooh yeah that you're filling in the details here God okay yes I see ooh yep and then on top of that if it all works together you would see why why did he why did he design the world that way and you see not only all the bad things you did but how. He orchestrated everything to come together such that you and all the billions of other people doing bad things, nonetheless, good ends up triumphing in the end. And you're just in awe at like, whoa, that was a pretty cool story you just told. And um, and so if you're in that view and this, then you end up instead of concentrating on your weaknesses and failings, you're just in awe of how did you pull that out? That's amazing that the intellect and the the mercy, and of course, a key component of that is he was willing to come in as a man and let himself be killed, and that was a crucial part of the story to make it all fit. So, you know, those are two two routes you could take. You could just sit there, and be horrified and furious, and full of shame about your own weaknesses, or you could have kind of known that going into it, and now you're just sitting there impressed to see how does it all fit together, and oh, okay, that's why those bad things had to happen because now I see it as part like little cogs in the whole big story of the triumph of good over evil and this is amazing and how love is more powerful than hate and wow wow this is amazing and, and that's the difference between heaven and hell so if it's something like that obviously i'm just speculating here but suppose it were something in the ballpark of what i just said and then the christian story or christian worldview makes a lot more sense telling you that no you deserve hell and if you don't get a savior you're not going to like the judgment where it's not God imposing what you think are arbitrary. You know, it's not like, oh, what, I'm not supposed to eat pork or something? Give me a break. No, it's you're going to see the suffering you caused people that you didn't realize. And your own value system, you're going to be, you know, 
have guilt. Right. So you're, you know, one of the things that is the word that comes to mind, I should say, in talking about and hearing what you just said, and also with with reference to your um, your, your realization that the way that you looked at the world, you know, uh, is the word awakening. Uh, and it sounds like you know the way you would view this is you know you you could wake up now to the the reality of your existence before before it's too late, um, or you can you can be frustrated after it's too late. Uh, would that be fair? I mean, you've, you've used that uh, several times. It's like, like looking back at, or just seeing the world as it really is rather than as the way you thought it was. Yes. I, I like that a lot. And also just to give more of the story that's relevant to what you just asked. So it, at the time, you know, when I had that, I'm calling it an epiphany, you can call it awakening. What I did the next few days is I was going around apologizing to people, like the the ones I could still, you know, either my direct day to day life at, at grad school, or I was even remembering people from years ago, and I was trying to find them on Facebook and stuff to apologize to them, like to say, you know. So anyway, um, so yes, if just in my own little thing there, and all of a sudden I was filled with remorse and went and tried to fix it as best I could. Y- yeah, you can imagine. Suppose that that's what what happens in the afterlife is you realize just how much damage you inflicted and then it's too late to do anything about it at that point because you're dead you know or you're not on earth anymore so um and and maybe that's what what hell would be is if it was so unbearable that you couldn't you couldn't stand how awful you had been again according to your own value system um so yeah to come to be enlightened and come face to face with the truth And, and that's also where you know i think christian humility comes in that you know, you you really don't want to go through this world thinking you're so much better than those people over there because you're not. And if that's what you're thinking and that's how you're basing your self-worth on, you're just setting yourself up for catastrophe if if what I said is remotely true as to what's going to happen after you die. Well, Bob, you've, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in different ways. You know, we've had guests on this show to tackle the, the topic of divine violence and even, I think, on the topic of hell uh, that we've touched on. And so, you know, there's, there, we have a variety of uh, beliefs in the Christian spectrum, as you probably know. And I think one more way to look at it is is what you've provided us here. So, um you know, I really like the way that you your your testimony basically is very uh, self reflective in a lot of ways. That you you go back and try to reconcile. You weren't just you know, you weren't just somebody who moved on and said, "Oh well, okay, I was wrong, and I'm not going to deal with the fact that you know I hurt other people and things like that." And that you you seem to have this humble way of of expecting or examining your life and expecting that you know you might be wrong, and that you you can be changed. And I think you know. Uh, I think that's what happens as you as you grow. I don't want to say grow older. Uh, I'm learning that that's part of part of Christian and adult maturity is to realize that you know, that's just what Christian. I guess we call it discipleship as Christians is that we we realize that we're growing. So yeah, thank thank you very much for for being here to tell us about this. Well, I, I appreciate it, and let me just because you brought it up again. Let me stress. It may have seemed silly, and people might have been wondering, like, what? Why is he talking about arrows and possibility theorem and the government debt debate? Because those just were two things where, like I said, I was, I was really sure I was right on those things, especially the government debate one. Like, I even had it in one, in one of my uh, books that I had written, the the view that I now think is it a little bit erroneous and certainly incomplete. And 
So if you've never had that in your life where you were so sure about something and then had it flip on you, um, you know, I, I would humbly <laughs> say, do you really think you're basically right about everything up till now? I mean, that's, and so if you, if you haven't had that experience, cause I think a lot of people when they're so sure about religion one way or the other, you know, I, I kind of just think, well, have you ever had a, a real big overturning of a, of an important view in your, in your opinion, you know, or in your intellectual superstructure? And so if not, I, I wonder, does that mean that you, you know, you're not, you would never go there or you would never examine your own beliefs enough to really, I so here I'm not talking about, you know, theology. I'm saying even something more mundane, something re related to your political views or something you do at work, what, what have you. But if you've never had like a major thing where you realized, wow, I was vehemently on the other side and thought the people disagree with me were crazy. And now I see this flaw in my reasoning and why they were actually right all along and to see how blind you were because they were saying true statements and you just kept dismissing them all along in that argument. So if, if you've never experienced that, um, you know, I think you're, you're missing out because that, I think that actually helped me. I think the, the fact that I had had those experiences um, made it possible for me to have that epiphany and realize, whoa, I have been totally mischaracterizing all these social interactions over the last decade plus. And so without that prior experience on some sort of, you know, trivial intellectual thing, I don't think just my psyche could have handled it. Well, Bob, I think if there's any impression that I want to have on this show is that we can be wrong and it's okay to, to move on. So I'm glad someone as authoritative in the libertarian <laughs> community is, is saying what you just said. And I think that's perfect to end on. So thank, thanks again. Uh, and for, for being here. Great. Thanks for having me guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. We are a 501c3 organization, and we depend on your generous donations. And you can go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate to support us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. <laughs>